Let's go in. I want you to think for uh, a moment. Uh, I, w- I want you to go back. For some of you, uh, uh, this isn't very far back, but, but for others of you, this is. It's a while ago. But um, where and when do you think you first got interested in sex and sexuality? If I asked you, if I actually asked you a question, would you, would you be able to answer that? I, it, it may be an easy question to answer for some of us, and it may be a difficult question to answer for others of us. The, the reason I think it might be difficult for some of us is we actually can't quite remember a time when we didn't find something fascinating and interesting about sex and sexuality. We, we didn't even necessarily have the words to describe anything or articulate anything when we first knew that certain words and certain conversation and certain images were just inherently interesting. It wasn't just something outside of us, though, something we heard out here. It was also something going on inside of us. Maybe physically, maybe it had something to do with our bodies, but it also was something deep. It was like a a jumble of emotions and feelings. I think the first time I really remember being interested in a girl was in kindergarten. It didn't mean much, but, but I remember there was some kind of fascination for me that was different than boys. I think it was in fifth grade that I first really focused on a girl named Mara in my class. It was just a level of fascination and interest. It's like, and I, I, I didn't have any words for it. I don't think I, the word sex and sexuality, well, certainly the word sexuality wasn't in my vocabulary at, at, at age 11, but it was just there. Uh, I grew up in a Christian family. Uh, I grew up like my, my kids. My dad was a pastor. Bibles were around. We just did that kind of thing. I remember in junior high, the first time I stumbled across a book in the Bible, it's relatively small, called The Song of Solomon. Any of you ever read it? I tell you, that was an awakening experience. To, uh, I'd, n- I'd never found uh, any other book in the Bible quite like it, and it was just inherently interesting. I read it more than once. <laughs> what, what, what is this? There, there are, there's something, there's just something inherent in who we are. God made us, if you didn't notice, I just want to remind you of something if you've forgotten. God made us sexual people, sexual creatures. He didn't create humanity as one simple, you know, one reality, but he made us as human beings as two realities, male and female. And with that distinction, God placed within us something that draws us, draws us together, something that interests us, something that fascinates us. And I know it goes way beyond that. If if you and I are normal people, we pay special attention to certain voices, including those voices when we think about sex and sexuality. And the two, I'm just going to give simple categories, the two main voice sets that we listen to are our own voice, 
the voice uh, that, that wells up within us, the voice of our own feelings and yearnings and desires, the voice of what we just naturally think about, the voice of what we feel deeply, the voice of what we've experienced, what we've, who we've known, where we've been. And then another set of voices, and that's the voices of everyone around us. It's the voices of culture, it's the voices of pop entertainment, voices of music and movies and images. It's the voices, whether it's audible or not, the voices we hear from our myriad of screens. It's the voices we hear or we think we hear from the people around us, our friends, our peers, our kids, our parents, all those voices. What ends up happening is, to a great extent, we become people who simply measure in our own lives some combination of all those voices. But I want to remind you that God invites us not to just be people who read the temperature of all the voices around us. He's got something else in mind for us. A couple weeks ago, uh, we recognized the 50th anniversary of the, of the killing, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. A couple of years before he was killed in 1968, he spent some days in jail in Birmingham, Alabama. And when he was in Birmingham, he wrote a letter, a letter from a Birmingham jail is what it was called. And that letter articulated Dr. King's words, writing especially to pastors in Birmingham, challenging those pastors about who they were and what voices they listened to and what voice they articulated. And he used this analogy. I, I doubt it was original with, with Dr. King. You maybe have heard it as well. But he said, you know, most churches and most pastors are thermometers when it comes to the culture and the world around them. But Jesus calls us to be something different. Not thermometers, but thermostats. He calls us to set the tone. For us to set the temperature. For us to speak a word that might just be a little bit different from any other word around us. To speak it and to live it. And what it takes to to be that kind of person, what it takes to be that kind of Christian, what it takes to be that kind of church, is to listen. By all means, we should pay attention to the voices that well up within us and the voices we hear around us. We can't avoid it. We're not supposed to be deaf to everything. But above all, we're called to listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. If you go back to the very beginning of the Christian faith, there were a, a couple of ways of expressing the heart and the core of our faith. What's the heart of the matter? The heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, and that he was seen and heard and touched. And all of that fulfilled a plan that was evidenced in the scriptures that God had given. It was all according to the scriptures. That's the heart of the gospel, that God would choose and reclaim and bless and change the lives of human beings based on Jesus Christ and his death, burial, resurrection, and impact on people. That's the core of the gospel. What's the core of our faith? 
Well, if you'd ask those earliest Christians just to sum it up in three words, in Greek it would have been just two words, they would have said this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's supreme over all. Jesus is Lord. He's the one through whom, through whom everything that exists, exists. Jesus is Lord. He's the one for whom all things exist. Jesus is Lord. He is the one in whom everything holds together. Jesus is Lord. He is the one who puts the pieces of what falls apart together again. What all the king's horses and all the king's men could never do, Jesus Christ is able to do. He puts people's lives back together. Jesus is Lord. His blood washes us clean. Jesus is Lord. He is God. But I want to focus on what we're talking about this week, last week, the next couple of weeks. I want you to listen again. Jesus is Lord of sex. He is supreme over it. Jesus is Lord of sex because he's the creator of sex and sexuality. Jesus is Lord of sex, sex and sexuality in their designed and designated setting of marriage between a man and a woman is a signpost or a witness about Jesus. Our marriages and our sexual relationships are meant to be a witness or a sign of Jesus. Probably don't think about that very often. Jesus is Lord. He is the one in whom everything, including sex and marriage and relationships in our lives, are able to find a a center and a glue and a cohesiveness. And without Christ, things tend to break apart and fragment. Jesus is Lord. He's the one who can put the pieces of what falls apart together again. And some of us know what it's like for the pieces of our sexual lives and our personal lives and our relational lives to fall apart. But Jesus, because he's Lord of sex and sexuality and of everything, is the one who can put those pieces together again. Jesus is Lord of sex. His blood washes us clean from the guilt and shame of sexual sin and sexual brokenness that exists at some level in every single one of our lives. None of us excluded. Jesus is Lord. So here's what I want you to think about. In order for you to live a healthy and whole life, including in the area of of sex and sexuality in your own life, it is essential that Jesus Christ be at the center of your life. Not just the center of your religious life. Not just the center of your, your spiritual life when you're thinking about spiritual things. But at the center of your life, your whole life. Jesus cares about everything in your life. He is the author of everything good. He is the one who can direct your life in, in, towards everything good. And without him, it will ultimately fragment and fracture. It will never make sense, and it will not ultimately hold together. Jesus is Lord of everything, and he's Lord of all we are. So in the next few moments this morning, I want to think with you about two words, putting them together in a way that I never thought about before until very recently, and I'm guessing not too many of you have thought about very much as well, and that is Jesus and sexuality. Jesus and sexuality. We've titled this series Mere Sexuality, and I totally stole that 
indirectly from C.S. Lewis, but more directly from a guy by the name of Todd Wilson, who pastors over in the city of Oak Park on the western edge of Chicago. And he wrote a book, relatively thin, called Mere Sexuality, just talking about what is the core of the historic Christian view of the Bible view of sex and sexuality. And one of the chapters, one of the areas he describes and thinks about is Jesus and sexuality. Which sounds different. Peter butter and salami. Uh, a croquet ball and a, a, and a baseball mitt. It, 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 we just don't put those things together. It, it, it sounds odd. But I want to suggest to you that it is not odd for us to think about Jesus and sexuality. And it begins here. We've already alluded to it a little bit. I, I'm going to ask that we put the first and the and the third scriptures up from John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2. So I want you to listen to these words. John chapter 1, Jeremy already read these words, but just listen again. The word, the word who was with God, the word who was God, the word through whom everything that was made was made, the word that is the light of mankind, that word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. At the beginning of the story of Jesus' life, as John tells it, he sums it up. It's poetic language, it's thick language, it's theological language, but you get it. God's communication, his word, actually became a human being and lived on this planet in the midst of our world. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer there talks about that same thing in just a little bit different way. So listen to these words. Since the children have flesh and blood... He too, this is Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In the beginning of the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 3, for all those reasons, the writer says, let's focus on Jesus. I want you to pay attention to Jesus. Because not only was he God, but he was human. And sometimes Christians have, have, have confessed that, but not really understood it, and not really wanted to fully embrace it. Christians have believed that Jesus is God, but also that Jesus is God in the flesh, that Jesus is God who is a human, the God-man. But sometimes we've had more what Todd Wilson calls, a, he has a, 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 almost like a, a Clark Kent view of Jesus. Clark Kent appeared to be human. But he was something else. He, he, he wore the clothes. He, he wore the appearance of a human being. But he wasn't. But what the Bible teaches us about, about Jesus Christ is that Jesus, who was God, when he was conceived in a woman, when he was birthed by that woman, when he grew up in that family in Bethlehem and later in Nazareth, when he lived his life on this planet, Jesus wasn't a pretend human being. He wasn't a partway human being. It wasn't just a, um, an appearance. It wasn't an outward thing. Through and through, Jesus was human. 
That's so significant. It's so significant because it's because of that that his death on the cross is significant for, for you and me because a human being had to offer the perfect, perfect obedience and offer the perfect sacrifice to make it possible for us to be reconciled and made one with the God who made us. And that could have never happen in any other way. But it goes so far beyond that because Jesus Christ knows what it's like to live the lives we live. He, he, he experienced being born. He experienced growing up. He experienced the fascinations of life. He experienced the temptations of life. In fact, he experienced temptations more significantly and powerfully than any of us in this room. C.S. Lewis talked about that one time. Here's how it works. All of us know what it's like to be tempted, right? Any of you know what it's like to um, succumb to temptation relatively quickly? I'm not, I'm not asking for hands or stories, okay? But, you know, you know uh, we're tempted and frequently that the pull of temptation is just, I mean, I mean sometimes I think we're tempted and, and when it's just a reflex for us, there's, there is a, a split second between the temptation and the action. We just, we give up right away. Some of us, if, if we had true confession here, would talk about some of the struggles in our lives, and we say they're struggles, but we succumb to temptation relatively quickly. And when you succumb quickly, do you know what? You don't really know the strength of temptation, because what you're push, putting up against it isn't all that strong. It, it can just give you a little jerk, and, and you're gone. But Jesus Christ never succumbed to temptation, and so when the temptation came... He always stood firm. I almost feel, uh, see like a, a, a tug of war, okay? And two sides, maybe just two guys. And, and let's rotate two people in, and this is temptation. The one side is a powerful pull, and it's the tempter side. And the other side is the average human being often. Get steady, get ready, get set. If you want to shorten that, it's get steady, okay? <laughs> So you get ready, and you get set, and, and, and the pull comes, and you just pulled right away. Because you, really, you, 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 you didn't give the fight. You don't really want to give the fight because it's intense, and it's exhausting. Just get it done with. Give up. But Jesus, on his end, held tight and firm and never was pulled over a line. Do you see? It's only when you do that that you really know what temptation is like. Jesus understands at the deepest level anything we struggle with. He understands the full power of the temptation. We don't even understand that full power. Jesus knew the experience of death of others and in his own life. Jesus understands. So significant. But I want to take it one step further. I want you to think about who Jesus was when he became a human being. Because Jesus did not just become a human being. Guess what? He became a male human being. I don't know that there was really any other option. I mean, it it was one or the other. Jesus was going to be a human being, but there's no simple, neutral um, human being. There are men and women. There are males and females. That's how God describes it in the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1. We looked at it last week. 
Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Jesus became a human being. He was conceived and born as a human being, but not just a generic, neuter human being. He was and is a male human being. Jesus embraced humanity as a male human being. He had to in order to be human. There's only one of two ways to do it. Todd Wilson writes about this. Through the incarnation, God the Son has a Y chromosome, facial hair, a higher basal metabolism rate, all the physiology, anatomy, and biochemistry that are distinctive to being a male. He didn't come as an intersex person whose condition eludes standard medical classification as male and female. Nor did he come as a sexless creature like legions of angels who are neither male nor female. Instead, the word of God took on a particular kind of human flesh. The kind that goes through puberty, grows armpit hair, has a ring finger longer than his index finger, a deeper voice than most women, and a penis. Jesus, when the word became flesh, God became a male human being. I just want you to understand that for a moment and and just sit there for a moment and recognize that God became fully human. And if you think that leaves women out of the picture, he had to be somebody. It doesn't. Because female humanity was intimately involved in Jesus' existence as a human being. Um, His male humanity came into existence through female humanity. As he embraced human nature and became one of us, became flesh, God the Son embraced the virgin's womb. The second person of the Trinity swam in amniotic fluid, fed from an umbilical cord, traveled a vaginal canal, and fed at his mother's breast. Through that umbilical cord, he is this particular man, the son of this particular woman, the bearer of the whole previous genetic history of her people and the recipient of innumerable hereditary features. Jesus was one of us. And he came into existence. There's a unique story about a virginal conception. Set that aside for a moment. I want you to remember that the development of Jesus inside of Mary and his birth were perfectly normal. Jesus came into this world the way you and I do. He was fully human. He was a male human being. And he still is. When he died, he was raised from death. And he was raised in a a powerful way, in a significant way. His body was transformed But do you know what that body, that transformed body still is? It's still a body as best we know with a Y chromosome. That is something that God has planned for your life and my life for forever. That's who we are. His plan for the future is not entirely different than his plan for the present, but it is so much better because, do you know what? There are things that are broken and confused in our male and female existences on this planet. Lots of There is a, a group of people who feel that difficulty in intense ways, but all of us know it in some ways. All of us have been a little uncomfortable with who we are in some ways. 
All of us have searched uh, in some ways for a, a greater peace with who God has made us to be. All of us know that we're not quite right. But in the resurrection that God invites us to trust for and look for when Jesus returns, you and I will be male or female human beings forever. But we will be exactly and perfectly what God intended in the beginning. That's the resurrection promise. I want you to think about one more thing with Jesus this morning. Um, There's something strange going on in our world right now. Um, It is becoming increasingly insignificant whether you were born physically or biologically as a man or a woman. I don't know that that's ever going to profoundly go anywhere or catch on, but it is a very fascinating, and something else than that, fascinating thing to observe what's going on in certain homes right now, in certain countries, where children are being raised and nurtured in homes and in schools with no indication of gender at all. No matter who they are, an entire class, totally avoid references to boys or girls. He or she. Anything stereotypical, anything traditional, anything that would ever set apart one person or another. The body and the way we're born is being treated suddenly in many circles as totally insignificant. What I want you to see in Jesus is that's not what God designed and that's not how Jesus is. The body is significant in the Christian faith. Elton Trubed long ago said, Christianity is the most materialistic religion in the world. And what he meant by that is that our bodies and our lives on this earth matter and that who God made us to be is significant and important. It's not always easy to fully understand that. It's not always easy for everybody to fully embrace that. But that is what God offers to us. It's our experience and it's something to be thankful for. So our bodies are becoming less significant But in our culture, more or less, if you don't have an active sexual life, if you're not having sex, if you're not in a relationship, one or multiple, whatever it takes, and especially if you don't experience that in the broad expanse of your life, you are by definition less than fully human. You are missing something absolutely essential to life. And if you don't have that, You're an incomplete person. You're less than you should be. I want you to think about Jesus for a moment. Jesus Christ was the only perfect human being who ever lived. Jesus, on this planet, gave signs of being a completely healthy human being. Nobody came to him concerned about him. Uh, Jesus was a picture of what God created us to be in the first place. He was one of the most giving people, and yet I, I, I dare say that if we take Paul's letter of Galatians 5 and those characteristics that we call the fruit of the Spirit, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, that those would be good descriptors of the kind of person Jesus was. He was a person of peace. He was a person of wholeness. He was a person of love. He was a person of joy. He loved people. He loved to eat. 
<laughs> he loved to spend time. He loved to spend time in nature. He loved to be in places with lots of people in a city. Jesus was this very full. His life was full and rich. But do you know what? Jesus never had sex. Jesus was never married. He never had a sexual partner. He never had a sexual experience in that way. And I want to ask you something. Do you think Jesus was missing the most essential piece? Our world today might just say he's missing the most important part of life. And the mere fact that Jesus was the most complete person who ever lived and did not have, did, never got married and never had a sexual relationship is something that's really important for all of us to hear and maybe for some of us especially to hear. Why is it important for all of us to hear? Because all of us spend a not insignificant amount of our life single. All of us start that way. All of us end that way. And a lot of us spend a lot of our lives single, even if we never intend it. My mom's been widowed twice. She's been single a lot more than she ever anticipated. Her sister, Nancy, has been widowed twice. But Nancy only got to be married about eight years the first time. And 15 years later, after Uncle Edward died and she got remarried, it was only about a year after that that Uncle Gordon was diagnosed with cancer. My Aunt Nancy, in the last 60-plus years, has been married, I think, less than a decade. She's got four kids, had all that. Is her life totally incomplete? Is her life a waste because she only got to have sex or be in that relationship for just small portions of her life? Jesus' reality reminds us of something, that sex is significant, it's a gift from God, but it's not the center of the universe. And if you're not in in that kind of relationship right now, and in the coming weeks we're going to try to spell out a little bit more about God's will for sex and sexuality in in relationships. But especially if you're not in that world right now, and and especially if you wonder if you ever will be, I want you to know that Jesus Christ has lived your life, and he understands And it's okay. And there's ways to find fullness and completeness in this life that are distinct and different than that. If you only had Genesis 1 and 2 to go on, you might think it is essential for every human being, male and female, to get married and to have children because that's sure what it sounds like. Male and female, come together, be fruitful and multiply, fill the planet. That's God's plan. And it sure was, and it it is. But if we only had that to go on, we would all feel like what sometimes some of us feel like on the inside already, and that is if I'm not in a relationship, if I'm not in a sexual relationship, if I'm not in a marriage, there's something wrong with me and incomplete until I fill it with that. But Jesus is here to say, no, no. There have been so many people who are single, whose lives were rich and full like Christ's, who were never married. And, and that's okay. And that's especially important in a church because guess what? We are a family-dominant, marriage-dominant community. It's not a bad thing, exactly. But all of us married folks in this room, I want you 
to be sensitive and welcoming and reaching out always to friends who are not married or not in a relationship. Churches can sometimes be the most difficult place for a single person to step into. You know that? And those of you who are married, someday you may lose a spouse and then suddenly you will know. And we want to be a community of people who would welcome not only Abraham and Sarah, but Jesus into our midst. Jesus wouldn't have walked in with anybody else. And would we have turned a a shoulder, not intentionally, but unintentionally, towards him? Jesus and sexuality. Sounds strange, doesn't it? But I want you to think about our Lord, the perfect picture of humanity, like us, a male human being, like us, into this world through female sexuality, a female body. A female reality. The Bible again and again tells us that both men and women are essential to the human community. And male and female are a pair that God has designed from the very beginning to be joined in this marriage relationship. We're going to talk more next week about what that relationship is by sheer definition. And we're going to next week not so much consider who Jesus is, but what Jesus and some of his earliest followers said about sex and marriage and how and in what way they belong together and even what marriage really is to begin with. Is Jesus Lord of your life? That's the confession of our church and of our faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says, it's only by the Holy Spirit that any one of us can really say those words and really mean them and really be committed to them. But the question I ask for you is not what you might say when you confess your faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or some biblical creed out of 1 Corinthians 12, but what do you live from the inside of your life? And do you recognize that Jesus is Lord of every part of who you are? Our world is spinning out of control because we are enslaved to a million different voices inside and out. But there's one voice that is clear and good. Listen to his voice above all others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We are grateful this morning for your grace in our lives, for the design of your creation and the beauty of how you made everything and how you made us. Lord, we cry out to you out of the midst of not simply a beautiful creation, and we're not any longer uh, perfect representatives of the people you made. We live in a world and we are marred and marked by the reality of sin and death and things that are not quite right. We desperately need the grace you offer us in your son Jesus.